Amen, amen. Well, good to see you. Open up your Bibles. We're in 2 Corinthians today. 2 Corinthians. We'll get there in just a moment in chapter 8. Before we do that, let me take a moment myself to, to formally welcome David and Jessica to be with us. Didn't they do a great job today? And we're, we're thrilled about the future of our church, especially what's going on in our worship ministry. Uh, I did not know it, but uh, the consultant that we worked with, uh, with uh, Dwight Whitworth and company, Ken Van Cura, if you'll remember when, when David and Jessica came in view of a call, he was supposed to be present with us that day. He had COVID and was not able to be here pr uh, present in, in, in person. He's actually here today. Ken, won't you stand up for a moment? Let, let our church thank you for all your work and leading us. He did such an, a tremendous job. I will tell you, we, we've searched for pastors in various capacities throughout the many years uh, that I've been here. In fact, throughout all of my ministry, there's never been a search process uh, that was easier and less stressful than this one. So we, we appreciate you guys and all that you did. We're praying God's favor upon your ministry as you continue. Uh, Pastor BJ, who was here just a minute ago, also failed to uh, recognize another significance about this day, and that today is his birthday. I don't know if he may have slipped out. Is he somewhere? I don't know. He's 36 years old today, all right? He's an old man. If you really want to know how old he is, I was graduating from high school the year that he was born, so that makes me even older than that, all right? So if you see him, make sure that you wish him a happy birthday. Well, it's obvious today that we're going to be addressing the subject of stewardship. We're going to be talking about giving. Now, if you're a first-time guest with us today, I just want to let you know, uh, you know, we, we don't talk about giving every single week, every single Sunday. Uh, I know that churches often get accused of doing so, uh, but if you show up today, as you, you may have, and you come back next week, um, yes, this week and next week, we're talking about giving, all right? Uh, I promise we're not going to keep on talking about that, but today that is the focus for this week and next week. And I, I typically get a couple of reactions when we talk about stewardship and we talk about giving. For those who faithfully give, uh, after I preach a message, it's often, all right, preacher, preach on, give some more of that, right? And for those that, uh, if they wanted to talk to me about it, uh, about giving, if they're not faithfully giving, they may go off from here and say, all that guy does is talk about money, all right? Well, that's not true, of course. But by my recollection, I, the, I think it's been not since the fall of 2019 that I've actually directly preached a message on stewardship. But let me ask you a question, regardless of where you fall out on this particular subject. Suppose that God would choose miraculously to appear here this day, and he spoke on one subject. Do you think that would be important what he had to say about that? What if he spoke on that subject, say, a half a dozen times? Do you think that subject would be important? Well, did you know that there are over 2,350 Bible verses that speak about money and possessions? Did you realize that? In fact, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, 15% of the spoken words of Jesus deals with money or possessions, or at least he uses money or possessions to talk about God's kingdom. And listen, if, if Jesus is to be Lord and Lord of, of our lives, He's supposed to be Lord of all, right? Of everything. And that includes our possessions. It includes our money. The Barna Group once released a study on American giving. And, and in the U.S., the United States 
is considered generally to be, to be the most generous nation on the planet, but only 5% of American adults donated 10% or more of their income to charities or to churches in the last year. So there's a really big question I want you to be asking when it comes to giving. Does it really matter? Does my stewardship with the things that the Lord has given to me and blessed me with, does it really matter? So, so what if I don't give much to the church or anything at all? I mean, God owns everything, doesn't He? Is He really concerned all that much with, with, with what I have to give and what I give? I mean, I can't afford to give much anyway. How can the little that I could give be of much importance? How can it help that much? Because I have maybe even really seen much good done with the things that I've given. Well, I want you to consider it this way. We, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. I don't know what it is about us in the Western context, but we, we like to keep things in neat little divisions. We have our family, and we have our, our friendships, and we have our work relationships, and we have spiritual matters, and sometimes we don't like these things to touch one another. However, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if He is your Lord, if He is your Savior, your relationship with Jesus is not just a component of your life. It ought to touch everything else about you. It shapes everything else about you. And this would include especially your finances, your possessions. Because believe it or not, what you do with what you have really does matter. It's a vital part of the Christian faith. Stewardship matters. Giving matters. Because God has called us to be givers. He is a giver himself. He's empowered us, therefore, to, to be givers. And if He's called us to be givers, empowered us to be givers, friends, don't you want to excel at that? Don't you want to be an excellent giver? Well, that's the point of our message today. And we're going to get a, a picture of this, of what it means to be an excellent giver from the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians. If you have your place in Scripture, I'm going to invite you to do what we often do as we begin uh, uh, preaching a message we're going to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible doesn't command us to do this, but we do love God's Word around here, don't we? And so we're standing in honor of the reading of it because we believe that this is God's holy and inerrant Word. Listen to this. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what Paul writes. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Pray with me. Lord, I want to first acknowledge that you are the great giver. Your word tells us that you gave your only son to be a propitiation for us, for our sin. You sacrificed your son that he might die in order that we might live. So Lord, because you are the great giver and that you died to provide salvation for us, out of our love for you, 
out of our faith in you, out of our devotion to you. I pray that you would encourage us and remind us that we are to be givers and not just so-so givers, but we should excel in our giving. Encourage us in this, Lord, that we might reflect you more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I guess it's a good time of year to talk about goals. A lot of people have resolutions, but do do you know that God actually has some goals for you and for your life? I mean, how many of you know that God has goals for you? You aware of that in some form or fashion? I, I can name a few of them, not the least of which is that God wants you to have a relationship with Him. He, he desires for you to, to know Him through Jesus Christ. And beyond that, then to grow in that relationship, to grow in Christ's likeness. And not just that, but to lead others to, to be to, in a relationship with Christ. And that he, he wants you to be a giver, to generously give. Eugene Patterson tells a story in his book that's entitled Run with the Horses, a, a story about some birds that, that were teaching their young to fly. Three young swallows were, were, were perched on this dead branch that stretched over a lake. And here's what he wrote about that. He said, one adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing, pushing, pushing. The end one fell off. Somewhere between the branch and the water below, the wings started working and the fledgling uh, was off on his own. Then the second one, then the third one. But the third one, however, was, was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward and tightened again, bulldog tenacious. Then the parent pecked at, desperate, uh, at, at, at the feet, pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the chick to hang on than to risk the insecurities of flying. The grip was released and the wings began pumping and the mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly that there was no danger in making it do what it was designed to do. And Patterson continues with this. He said, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they are flying that, that are they living at their best gracefully and bountifully. And then he makes this statement about us. He says, giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some people desperately try to hold on to themselves, to live for self. They look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it, hanging on to the dead branch of selfishness and self-centeredness, afraid to risk themselves on the untried wings of giving. Yet many people don't think they can live generously because they have never tried. Christian, listen to me. The giver of all has saved you and He has redeemed you and He has changed you. He's changed your very heart and your very nature. He has recreated you to be a giver. To give of yourself. To give of your time. To give of your talents. To give of your finances. When it comes to giving, we were meant to soar. The Macedonian believers were some of those that were soaring with their giving. Paul, when he was writing to the, to the uh, Christians in the city of Corinth, as he was writing to them, he was telling of some Christians that were in the area, from an area known as Macedonia, which is a part of the region of Greece. And there were, there were Christians there. They, they were very, extremely poor Christians. But that didn't stop them from being the giving people that God had created them to be. 
And so Paul had this project that, that the Lord had laid upon his heart. We'll call it the, the Jerusalem Collection. He was raising some support from among the Gentile believers out among the Gentile churches to support Christians who were back in Jerusalem uh, who were suffering from a famine. And because of their faith in Christ, uh, that meant that others were not providing for them in that season of want. And even though the Macedonian believers, they didn't know who these Jerusalem Christians were in person, even though they themselves, these Macedonian believers, uh, weren't well off themselves, they, they were willing to give in support of, of the mission to the kingdom. And so now as Paul is bringing them up as he's talking to some other believers in the Corinthian church, and he's pointing to the Macedonian believers, and he says, you know what, when it comes to giving, let me tell you a group of people I would like for you to mimic. A, people, a group of people you ought to pattern your life after and pattern your giving after and be like them, to excel at giving like them. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or no money at all. Be a giver. And what Paul is revealing here for them, but now for us, shows us how we can be excellent givers. So let's just take a few moments and let's plow through this text and examine these words of Paul and ask, how can we be like the Macedonians? How can we be excellent at giving? And as I've begun to examine Paul's uh, description of them, I, I believe there are four traits that we could pull out of this text that we should embrace to be excellent givers. And here is the first one. If we want to be excellent givers, I would encourage you to give generously. You see, these Macedonian believers, they were an exceptional lot. But what was exceptional about them is that they were quite poor. But it wasn't their poverty, that, it was not poverty that got in the way of giving. In fact, let's go back and read the first three verses again, especially verses 2 and 3. Paul is again writing to the Corinthian believers, speaking about the Macedonians. He says, we want you to know, brothers, brothers in, in Corinth, about the grace of God that is given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, so they're not having a good time themselves, but in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and of their, in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, Paul says, but also beyond their means of their own accord. So the Macedonians, they're poor, but they're not just poor. Paul says they're in extreme poverty. Some people think that, that being a generous giver is something that, that wealthy people do. You know, God's not given me a lot in my life, and so, but I know He's blessed others, and so let's, let's lean upon their generosity. But you know, that's not true, how, that kind of thinking. Generosity and generous giving, it's not just for a select few, it's for everyone. I mean, can you just imagine the, the prayer lives of some, Lord, Lord I, I want to be more generous, I want to give more, but I'm, Lord, I'm just not rich. If you could just give me a little bit more, I will give more, right? Some of the most striking examples of, of gener generous giving in the Scriptures, they're, they're not by, by those who have a lot, but those who have very little. I'm thinking about the Macedonians, as Paul describes them here in chapter 8, or, or the widows there in, at Zarephath in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. I mean, all she had was a handful of flour and some oil. And when, but when Elijah comes by, she gives everything that she has to him, meaning she would have nothing after that. Or I think about the widow, the widow with the two mites that we learn about in Luke chapter 21. They, uh, the, the, all of these, these people, they, they gave, gave generously, even though they were poor. 
And it's a testimony and not a pressure to those who do not have much, but it's a testimony to all of us that all of us can be generous. You know, I remember a time, a season of my life when I didn't have much. Now, I, I grew up quite, quite blessed in my family growing up, but then I went off to school in my early days of, of getting into college and even more so into seminary. And more and more of the burden of my life was upon my shoulders as a young adult than when I was a child. I, I remember squeaking by in seminary out, out in Texas at, at Southwestern Seminary. Ramen noodles were often on the menu. Anybody have been there before, right? Uh, so was tuna, help, tuna Helper that I would make in my dorm room using electric, uh, it was a hand-me-down electric skillet, but I, I made tuna helper and, and would cook some toast to sort of flesh out the meal. I remember struggling to pay the $35 a month for the catastrophic health insurance that I really couldn't afford. At one point, uh, while I was going to school full-time, I had not one, not two, but three jobs one working at a church as an intern, and two custodial jobs, again, doing all that I could to make ends meet. And so there have been seasons of my life where I didn't have a whole lot. And I have no doubt that there's probably some, if not several, among us who still struggle like that, especially with the way that inflation is, is wreaking havoc upon our economy. But you know what I've I found? I've found that some of the most giving people that I've ever known are those that don't have much. It, maybe their perspective on, on things is, is, is different from those that have much. But with what, from what, with what they have, they're quite generous. And they're just like the Macedonians. And it was out of their extreme poverty that they gave. And they didn't just give a little bit, but they gave with liberality. Note again, verse 2, that it's, Paul says that their extreme poverty is overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The idea of, of being gener generous, it means you're giving with simplicity and sin sincerity. It's not a, a self-giving, uh, self-seeking kind of giving. I'm not giving so that I get back. But it's when you give generously, you're giving with the singleness of heart. That's what generosity is. It's giving with a purity of heart. And when you give with a purity of heart, it's never about the size of the gift. It's always about the size of the heart. And with that, I would say it's not about being rich or poor. In fact, generosity is really not about giving or money at all. For, for you, can be generous in a lot of ways. It's, it's about giving of yourself wholeheartedly into your time and your talents and spiritual giftedness. So God has purposed that all of us be givers who give gener gener uh, generously regardless of what we have. He wants our hearts to reflect a relationship with the God who is generous with us. Now, Listen, giving isn't something we have to do. Let me say that again. Giving isn't something that we have to do. And I say that to say this. Giving is something we get to do. It, it ought to be a joy. And that's why we should do the second thing if we want to be excellent givers. We ought to give enthusiastically as if it's a, a privilege to give, not a burden to give. In fact, that's how the Macedonians gave. If you look at verse 4, you'll see them pleading begging for the opportunity to give. Verse 4, Paul says the Macedonians were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Can I tell you that every time I read this verse, verse 4, this shames me to see these who were described as being in extreme poverty 
They didn't have much, as we used to say, they didn't have two nickels to rub together, right? You ever heard that phrase? That's a description of them, not much, and yet at the same time, they are begging, begging for the opportunity to give more. You know, in our world today, they'd be the ones who'd have their hands out, right? Give me something. I don't have much. You that have much, give to me. And yet we don't see this in the heart of the Macedonians. They are begging to give. Why don't I think like this more often? Why, why is my, not, my heart not ch- turned that way? Here, here's the thing about the Macedonians. They had a vision for the kingdom. They had a vision for the mission. They had a vision for the ministry, and it's reflected in, in the, the way that they gave and the, their desire to give. They, they desired for the kingdom to be advanced. They de- desired for the gospel to be proclaimed. They desired to see the sta- saints of the Lord ministered to, and so they gave so that it would happen. You know, that internship I mentioned when I was, when I was in seminary a few minutes ago, that happened to have been back in the 90s in, at, at First Baptist of, of Dallas, Texas. One of the historic pastors uh, of that church was the great George W. Truett. He was pastor of that church in the first half of the last century for over 50 years. From time to time, he'd be called to, to go minister to another church just to preach one Sunday. And one particular Sunday, he had he'd been asked and he accepted the invitation to go to a church that was struggling uh, to meet ends. And so they, they had a, a church building that they were trying to, to uh, raise some money for. And they still needed, get this, $6,500. That's not a lot of money in our day and time, but it was about $100,000 worth in today's dollars back in those days. Small little congregation. He's trying to help them raise the money. And, uh, and as he had preached the message and was calling the church uh, to, to make pledges to meet this goal of $6,500, uh, he found the response to be quite weak. In fact, with only $3,000 pledged, he, he said in exasperation, do you expect me to give the other $3,500 needed to reach your goal? I'm only a guest here today. Some of you, a woman in the back of the room, she stood up. Her su- husband was actually on the platform at that moment. He was one of the ones recording the pledges as they were being made. And looking at her husband, she said in a shaking voice, Charlie, I wonder if you would be willing for us to give our little home. We were offered exactly $3,500 cash for it just yesterday. And if the Savior gave his life for us, shouldn't we make this sacrifice for him? And Charlie, sitting on the stage, says to his wife, Jenny, yes, Jenny, I was thinking the same thing. He turns to Dr. Truett and he said, Brother Truett, if it's needed, we'll raise our pledge by $3,500. Just like this, there was silence through the room. And then... Suddenly, weeping and sobbing began to unleash across the room. And those who had just 15 minutes before had refused to do more than what they had pledged or, or maybe not even added their names to the list at all, they began to in- increase their donations. And in a short time, they had raised all the money. And Charlie and Jenny, they didn't have to sacrifice their home. But I- I've raised to you their example to say this. What they saw when it came to, be, to giving, they saw giving was something that they got to do. And they did it with enthusiasm. And their enthusiasm for giving and giving sacrificially was was a spark to encourage others to do the same. Now, here's a third trait. I want to bring us back to the text. A third trait to embrace as an excellent giver. And that is to give devotedly. Devotedly. Verse 5. 
And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us accordingly. We urge Titus that he, as he has started, so he should complete uh, among you this act of grace. That act of grace is important. We'll get to it in just a moment. The giving is an act of grace. When Paul said of them that they gave not as we expected, you may, upon reading it with an American viewpoint, that Paul was a little disappointed with their giving, but he's not. It's just the opposite. When Paul said that they gave as, not as we expected, he was saying we were expecting them to give less. We expected less of them, and they went way beyond our expectations. And, and Paul then notes the reason for what motivated them to give beyond what others would have expected of them. He says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to this relief fund. Now, Paul wasn't sort of giving an order of their giving. He wasn't saying, you know, they gave first to the Lord, to the, to the local church, and then after that, they gave to this special uh, relief collection that I was taking. He wasn't saying, yeah, they gave a tithe first to the Lord and then gave us some money. Secondly, after they saw what they had left over to the Jews in Jerusalem. And what Paul is saying here is he's talking about their priorities. He's saying that they were devoted to the Lord first beyond anything else. And all of that is because of the grace that they experienced. They had experienced God's grace, which is something that clearly defined the Macedonians. In fact, go back up to verse 1 for a moment. I'm just going to hit on this. wasn't intending to, but I just want you to, to see this. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the, the churches of Macedonia. I, I point out this verse. The point out that that word grace comes from the Greek word charis. It's a Greek word for grace. And now jump down to verse 4 very quickly and notice that he when he was talking about how they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word favor we, we translate it as favor here into the English language, but guess what that word is in Greek? It's the Greek word charis, grace. So the grace in verse 1, the grace of God that has been given. Verse 4, the favor of the grace that they were begging to take part, of, part, part in. So this commitment to giving isn't something that originated in themselves. It's something that they first saw in God. It was the grace of God that He gave to them, gave them salvation. And it was through the grace of God that He was working in them. It was through the grace of God that He developed in them. And it was because of God's grace that they were devoted to the Lord so that when they were giving, it was a, an act of grace. It was a response to what God had been doing in their lives. And so they gave because God first gave to them. That's what the gospel is all about. To understand how we can be right with God is to recognize that apart from God, we can do nothing to save ourselves, but only because God gave Himself. We were sinners lost in our sin, unable to save ourselves. God gave His Son to pay the penalty of our sin. It was an act of grace because we didn't earn our salvation. We don't deserve our salvation, but His salvation was given to us by grace. And because the, the, the Macedonians were very well aware of this. That's how the, this idea of the concept of grace, saved by grace, and what they do were acts of grace. That's how they filtered all of life. They had experienced the grace of God. They had experienced the gospel. The great giver had saved them. And now because of their devotion to Christ, 
for what he had done for them, because he was first to, to, uh, to give before anything else, they are now giving as the God who had saved them. And since they were touched by the grace of God, they wanted others to be touched by the grace of God as well. And so they gave an act of grace, an act of grace that they hoped Timothy would be, or that Paul hoped Timothy would be encouraged to adopt. And so they gave, giving to support the mission of God, all because they were devoted to the Lord. I just want to make just a very bold statement. Christian, listen to me. If you are walking with Jesus, if you're seeking to be devoted to Him, giving isn't an option. It's just not. Our God is a giver. And if we serve and are devoted to the giving God, He expects us as Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. If we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be Christ-like, we need to be givers because a giver is who you are as a follower of Jesus. So give if you're devoted to Him. All right, let's get to this last point. So here's the thing. We're expected to give generously. We're expected to give enthusiastically. And absolutely, if we're followers of Christ, that ought to be a natural thing that we do. We ought to give devotedly because it's a privilege to do so. So if all of that is true, shouldn't we excel at our giving? Well, I think that's the, the, the last point that, that Paul is encouraging us to do. But I'm going to use a different word than excel. It's abundant. We need to give abundantly. Let me explain by reading verse 7. Paul says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness, in our, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what Paul is hoping for these believers in Corinth, as he's telling the story or the, giving the example of the Macedonians, Paul is saying, look, God desires that we evidence, that we exhibit the evidence of his work in us. And that can be seen in many ways. These acts of grace can be in our faith, it can be in our speech, it can be in our, the, the, in our knowledge of Him and of, of the Word, it can be in our love for other believers, but also, in addition to this, not as an option, but in addition, we ought to exhibit the grace of giving. And we're not just to sort of give, but we are to excel in our giving. That, that word excel it means to abound in giving. It means to exceed in giving. Now, I know that's proportionate based on, on, on what God has provided for you, but, but for many of us, we abound not in giving, but in receiving. We, we, we think, if I, if, if I give up this, then I won't be able to give that. And so we sort of hoard the things that we have. But, you know, it's often children that, that excel far more at giving than adults do. Surprisingly, you'd think. I'd like to read an article to you. I think I've shared this with you before. The, an article that was entitled the, kind of cut of, the Kindest Cut of All. It comes from the, the Nashville, Tennessee, and oh, well over 20 years ago. Let me just read it to you. It, just, it still touches me. Even as a toddler, Brandy Gamache's photographs highlighted the long strawberry blonde hair gracefully flowing over her shoulders. Two weeks ago, Brandy, age eight, ordered a stylus to cut most of it off and to give the 14-inch mane to a little girl who doesn't have any hair. Brandy had just finished reading a, a, a book about a girl who had lost her hair during chemotherapy, and soon after, she read an article about a not-for-profit organization called Locks of Love. 
which uses donated hair to provide hair prosthetics for children with medical hair loss. And Locks of Love has helped 40 uh, children to get hair pieces, uh, which take four and a half months to make. Founder Peggy Knight, it says, has seen transformation in the wig wig recipients, mostly girls with alopecia, which is an immune ailment uh, that causes hair loss. Uh, And from from sad lowered faces, these these kids turn into smiling, hair-flipping girls. So Brandy, back to the eight-year-old, Brandy had fought for years to keep her hair long. Her mom had wanted to cut it because it was difficult to manage, but when Brandy came with her with the idea to cut it all off, mom was reluctant. Here's what mom said. Mom said, it was traumatic for me. It's like a part of her is getting cut. But soon after, Sharon, the mother, saw a bald little girl at, at the store. And she called it God's sign in a in scheduled appointment. And here's what the stylist said. Stylist told me to close my eyes, Brandy says. And when I opened them, it was like, and her eyes widened to show her reaction to her missing hair. But she was proud that it will now rest on another girl's little head. I give this story to you because I, you know, I would like to have some of her hair. I'm losing mine. No. I I share this story with you because here is a child. She's not yet moved into the areas of responsibility, and perhaps that's why what's tainting uh, the mother's view as opposed to the daughter's view. But the mother was concerned about the loss of the child, of her own child, and wasn't thinking the same way that the child herself was thinking. And the person who had the hardest time in the story wasn't the child, wasn't the girl, wasn't Brandy. It was the mother. It was the child who was quick to give and to give abundantly. Not just a little bit, but to give greatly, to excel at giving. They give this example just as one small reminder that God not only wants us to be givers, not only wants to exhibit the spirit of Brandy, but He wants us to excel in giving, to abound in giving, not just giving a little, but giving even if it costs. And you may be thinking, well, sure, pastor, that's easy for you to say. I just don't have much or you don't have the bills that I have. I mean, how how much should I be giving anyway? And I know that's a fair question and we get it quite a bit. And a lot of discussion comes up about how much should a Christian give and the word tithe that comes up quite a bit. Tithing is an approach that's talked about in the Scriptures. The word tithe means a tenth. If you go to the Old Testament, the Israelites gave 10% of everything they earned and grew. They gave it to the temple, to the tabernacle. As you get into the New Testament, there's not a whole lot of detail or explicit discussion on the tithe in the New Testament. And One of the big debates among stewardship today is whether the tithe applies to Christians. And so I just want to give you some, some perspective on this, some thoughts at least to consider, because the tithe itself, the principle of the tithe, actually predates the Old Testament law. I mean, you, you go to, for instance, you go back to the, the story of Abraham. He paid tithes to the priest Melchizedek. You move into the, the era of the Old Testament law, and the law did affirm the tithe. Oh, but, but you also need to know that the Old Testament also called, the law called for a number of tithes. Not just the 10%, but when you added them all up, it was closer to 23%. It was just the first 10% that went to support the Levites, but more was expected to be given. And then you move into the New Testament, and you know that, that Jesus commended the tithe, or at least he, he rebuked those who were abusive of the tithe. And we also know that the New Testament epistles never tell us not to tithe. Uh, but do remember that, that the New Testament believers, most of them, especially in the early days, 
were, were converted Jews, so tithing would have been their normal practice, and at no point was there an instruction to them to stop doing that. A New Testament uh, instruction on giving does appear to, to, to build on the principle of tithing. Old Testament, in fact, tithing in the Old Testament was made on one's increase, which is the same idea that Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 when he says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside, stored up as he may prosper. And even the history of the church seems to accept it that the tithes was something normal Christians do. So, pastor, are you saying that uh, the, the, the Bible is telling us that there is a New Testament command to give a tithe? And the answer to that is no. There's not a New Testament command to do so, but, but the sense that I get from Scripture is that the tithe was assumed, or at least it was a, a good place to start. But I, I do think that the real point to understand is that God expects us to be excellent in our giving and not quibbling over whether it's this amount or that amount. And we shouldn't do so because we're, we're commanded to. It really ought to come as an overflow of gratitude for what God has done for us. I mean, how did, how did Paul put it in the next chapter, which we're going to get to chapter 9 next week. So as a preview, look at, look at chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verses 6 and 7. Just look to the next page. He said, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so you see, in the end, this giving and the subject of giving that so many have consternation and, and anxiety over, giving really isn't about money after all. But it's really about, it's about your heart. The state of your heart dictates your giving. And the state of your heart is determined by Jesus. You see, when, when God looked upon the condition of humanity and knew that we could not save ourselves and that, that it ultimately required God to offer the greatest gift, that God did not sow sparingly Himself. He didn't just give a little. He gave all. His heart was bent toward us with love, his heart was bent toward us with affection that he so loved us that God gave his son. Why? That we would not perish, but that we would have everlasting life. See, all of life, all of life is not about how much we can make of it here, but all of life is about Jesus. It's about God. And if all of life is about him, and how we live our lives before Him ought to matter. And if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, just as God was excellent in His giving to us and laying down His life for us, we sacrificially should excel in our giving as a reflection of what He has done of Him, as a reflection of the changed heart He has given to us. By the way, if you're here today and you're not much of a giver, I will tell you that starting to give is not going to change your heart. Okay, it's not. The point of this message certainly is not that you would give more to earn God's favor, to earn God's pleasure. But I would tell you this, because all of life is about Jesus. That all of life is about knowing God and worshiping Him. 
And knowing also this, that our sin comes in the way of us having a relationship with God. It comes in the way of us knowing God and being known by Him. And that only through a relationship with Christ can our sins be forgiven because He died for us on the cross, was buried and came back to life. If we trust Him and believe in what He has done and ask Him to forgive us, He will save us and He will change us and He will change our very heart. But when He changes our hearts, He will change who we are as givers. And I would challenge you in this. If you're not a giver, ask yourself this question. Is that a sign that Christ has not changed my heart? And if the Spirit of God speaks into your heart and speaks into your life and brings you under conviction and makes it known to you that you have never genuinely been saved, you've never trusted the Lord as your Savior, then more than anything else today, my challenge to you is this. Surrender to the great giver. Surrender your all to the one who gave his life for your sin. And do so today. And then let him begin to work on your heart. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, as I come to this moment, as we move to this point of response, I first of all want to thank you for this church because this is an incredibly generous and giving congregation as a collective. It is amazing the things that you have been doing through so many people who have been faithful to give through the many years. And I'm, I'm grateful for them and I'm grateful that we have the means to do what you've called us to do to impact this community, but also to reach this world for Christ because of their faithfulness week in and week out. And Lord, I, I'm also aware that so much more can be accomplished if more of us would see our stewardship as something we get to do, that we can be generous, that we can excel at it, we can be excited about it, enthusiastic about it, that if we're walking with you, the more and more of us that walk more intently with you, that you're bending our hearts toward being a people that give and excel and, and give abundantly. And I, I'm grateful that we're seeing an increase in that. But Lord, we want to see each of our church members, growing in this act of grace. Lord, nothing would please us more than to see someone here today come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the middle of a message about giving, about stewardship. And in the midst of, of a message directed to the church that, Lord, you would save someone today. And that you would bring someone who is outside of the kingdom of God and outside of the church and wrap your arms of grace around them and redeem them. Make them a new creation. So Lord, if you would bless us in seeing that happen today, Lord, we would be deeply grateful. Lord, whatever is to be done as a result of this message today, may it be to the glory and honor of your name, we pray. So let it be. We pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm